I have so much I want to say, and I don't even know how to start. So I think I'll just jump in the middle, start talking, and see where we end up. Last summer, last summer I did a series of messages called Stand. Some of you might remember. It's based on Ephesians 6. The theme was the spiritual warfare to which God has called us. And you might remember, I spent some time talking about the powers. Those are the spiritual forces at work in the world. Paul identifies them as these principalities, powers, authorities, rulers of this dark world. When he speaks of the powers, he seems to mean the spiritual side of what we sometimes call ideology. That is, the way people look at the world, their convictions, their, their, their opinions, but also their commitments, their feeling for life, their sense of right and wrong, all the things that go into shaping our view of the world and our view of ourselves. Paul says there's a spiritual dimension to that, and we as Christians must oppose the powers of darkness when the ideologies that they push run in conflict with the truth of God as it's found in Jesus Christ. And so that was the thrust of the whole, of the whole series. I've really wanted to follow up on it for some time because that series focused more than anything on one exhortation. Christians get a backbone. Be ready to stand. But it's important to have more than just a determination to stand for Christ. We also need to understand the issues that are involved. We need to understand where Scripture stands and where the world is and where they are out of sync. We need to understand what God wants for us if we're going to live the life God wants to live. So there needs to be an instructional side. It's not just a matter of exhortation, grow a spine and stand. It's a matter of understanding what it is to be a Christian and to live as a Christian in this world. And so that's what I want to talk about over the next several weeks. I don't know how many weeks. Depends how wordy I am. But the the message is created with intent, finding God's purpose for your life, because God does have a purpose for humankind and for each one of us. God didn't simply create us, throw us into the world with the instructions to find our own way, but God had a purpose for humanity. And we find our meaning, our significance, our well-being in walking in the ways of God, the ways he's created us to live. It's not as if the way some people think, we just accidentally evolved for no particular purpose on this planet, and now we just make up right and wrong ourselves. We make up good and evil ourselves. We make up purpose for ourselves. It's not that. We don't, we don't create our own purpose. We don't discover it in our inmost being, in our heart of hearts. We don't consult our inner life and find the meaning of it all. 
No, the meaning is found in God and God's intent because he's created us for a purpose, for all humanity. Now, I don't want to talk and, and reflect a whole lot on each of us as individuals. We all have to find our own individual path, but to understand what it is to be a human being. What, what occurred to me after I did the series this summer is that most of the issues we're facing today have to do with what theologians call theological anthropology. In other words, Anthropology being the science, scientific study of humanity. Theological anthropology is understanding humanity through the truth of Scripture. And so many of the issues we have, the confusion we have, the troubles we have, the, the train wrecks that we experience as individuals, but also as a culture, so much of that comes from being confused about anthropology. That is, who human beings are and who they're supposed to be. We see it even in the way people talk about it. We talk about identity all the time, don't we? Talk about identity all the time. People, when, when talking about sexual issues, it's all about identity now. And so you've got male and you've got female. You've got gay and you've got straight. You've got all sorts of different genders, we're told now. And this is all up for grabs and people are trying to decide what's right and what's wrong. It's a question of even understanding the nature of a human person. And so these are things that we have to look at. In the same way, when, when people talk about identity, and it's all about are you black, are you white, are you, are you Asian, are you whatever, Eth ethnic issues are very, very important, but they are not fundamental to our humanity. They, they are more surface. There is a deeper reality that the Scripture talks about that we have to understand, we have to grapple with. See, we can't speak to these issues that have to do with sex and gender. We can't speak to the issues that have to do with racial tensions. We can't speak to the issues of what makes for a good life unless we understand God's purpose for humanity. So that's what I want to deal with. It's kind of a theological series so that means next week nobody shows up, probably. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a theological series. Like, like I said, it's not simply exhortation, but it's an effort to, to instruct from Scripture, for us to listen to Scripture, to understand what God says about these things. So this morning, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 26 through 28, and we will be unpacking these verses for a number of weeks. From there, we'll see. But certainly for several weeks, we're going to be right here in Genesis 1. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of, in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature 
that moves on the ground. That's just three verses. But there's so much here. So much that I can't deal with all of it. You see some of the important themes that are coming forward. One has to do with ruling. There's this call to dominion that human beings are called to have a responsible stewardship over the world. They are to fill the world. That is, humans are called to fruitfulness. And so there is to be a growth of the human race, filling the world, ruling over the world, bringing out its potentialities. Theologians call this the cultural mandate, and I will be talking about it in future messages, but not, not today. But you see that prominent theme. You see how humankind has created male and female. That has a lot of implications. It speaks to some of the confusions in our society, but it also speaks to some old-fashioned sexism in the church. And I want to speak to that issue in some future messages. But today I want to focus on this, this one concept that is central to it all. It says here that God creates humankind in his image. What does that mean? People, people have all kinds of opinions. In the history of theology, lots have been offered. But what's interesting is the text itself does not tell us what it means by being created in the image and likeness of God. You know what that tells you? That tells you that what isn't obvious to us was obvious when the book was written. In other words, what, what we don't know, they knew. Because if they didn't, it would have been explained. So we're created in the image of God. What would that have meant at the time that Genesis was written. Well, this is where you have to project back into the ancient world, a world very different from our own. But once you see it, this passage just comes alive. And it says the most fundamental and most important thing about the nature of human beings. See, in the ancient world, the idea was that you had a God. They often believed in many gods, but most cultures, certainly in the Middle East, believed in a creator God of some sort. And this God was represented by the king. The king was viewed as the image of that God. Now, by image, it meant this king stood in his place by the authority of the deity and mediated the power of that deity, the rule of that deity. To rebel against this king is to rebel against God. That's how it was understood. So the king is understood to be the image of God, almost like a statue in flesh, mediating God's presence and power. Well, the king himself saw his power as mediated through images. So if you had a great king with an expansive empire, he would have statues made, images of himself, and those would be placed throughout the empire to remind people who was on the throne. But more than that, it was believed that those statues would, would mediate the presence and power of the king, holding back the forces of chaos and rebellion. And so 
The king was the image of God, and the king himself had images out in the world. That's how they thought of images. Now, what's so interesting here is in Genesis, it's a different idea. It's not the king who bears the image of God. Every human being bears the image of God. This is revolutionary. This is utterly new. This was unique in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, you had a few, like divinely appointed kings, who were thought to have some stature and status and importance. But human beings, they're like so many slaves. That's all they're good for. They were created to serve the gods in menial tasks. There was no sense of human rights. But here's Genesis telling us, that God has created all human beings, men and women, as images of God, that we are called to mediate the power and presence of God in this world. It says that we are to rule the world. In the next chapter, it talks about keeping the garden. You know, there's a, there's a purpose for us. We'll talk about that. It's part of that cultural mandate. But We go in the world and we go as the image of God. We are representing God. We are standing for God in the world. And therefore, we're to be like him. We're to be like him and we're to serve his purposes and his kingdom because he is our God and he has called us to this task. This task is our dignity. I mean, God has called us to this. Think of that. God has called human beings to submit to his will and to live in this world according to that will and to represent him in the world and to manage the world according to his will. Now, we don't see that happening, do we? Sin entered the world. Humankind was to fill the world and subdue it. Subdue it according to the will of God. So what did it do? We learn later in Genesis that humankind filled the world with violence filled the world with sin. That's what it says in Genesis 6. Filled the world with violence. And so there was judgment that fell. So we've not done a real good job of actually living out what God has created us to do and who he's created us to be. Sin has affected us. The way we live and the way we we feel about life, we, we forget about God, we start trying to make it up ourselves, we start consulting our own feelings, our own opinions, our own experiences, our own thoughts, and we decide for ourselves what kind of life we want to live and what's really important in life. And we make our best guesses at what'll make us happy and what'll bring fulfillment, and we grasp after those things. If somebody gets in our way, well, we, we do what we can to get them out of our way. Somebody challenges us, we'll fight them for it because we have, we have this one life and we're trying to make the best of it and we're on our own, so it feels. But God's been very clear. He has created us to be the connectors between himself and the world. What that means is to find your true self, to find fulfillment, it's not from looking within It's looking up and looking forward. If you look within, 
you're going to find truth and error in all your opinions. You'll find good and bad. You'll find all sorts of things in your own mind and heart. And to let that be the guide of your life, that's not going to guide you safely. We are sinners. We cannot simply trust whatever we think and feel. But we look to the God revealed in Scripture who has created us to image him in this world. So I look to God to seek God's will for how I am to engage this world. And I find God's will by looking up and looking forward into the world, not looking in, not not trying to decide what feels right to me, but instead letting my life be ruled by God, overseen by God. Does this make any sense at all? Are you following what I'm saying at all? I'm kind of just rattling on, but I'm, I'm hoping you can see it because what I'm trying to do is to challenge a fundamental premise of this day of darkness, and that is that, that it's all about what I feel and think and prefer inside me as an individual, and I can only find my true identity, thus my true fulfillment, by pursuing whatever, whatever sits well with my sense of what's best at that moment. I have to follow my inner promptings. There could be nothing less faithful to what the Scripture teaches than that, even though some Christians think just that way. The fact is, I only find fulfillment by submitting to the will of God, something outside me, something over me. I only find myself by surrendering myself. I only find freedom by submitting myself. And then I find my true self, the one God's created me to be. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Oksana Mayala, excuse me, Mayala. Have you ever heard of Oksana? She was is a young woman living in Ukraine. And she was a three-year-old little girl living on a farm, uh, many brothers and sisters, so Oksana tended to be forgotten. Her parents were both alcoholics, and one night their neglectfulness reached the pitch that though it was freezing outside, They went inside the house, locked up the doors, and left Oksana outside. She was by herself. She found warmth by going into the dog kennel there on the farm and snuggling up against the dogs. If she hadn't done it, she probably would have died. From that day, her parents pretty much abandoned her. "Eh, She likes sleeping with dogs. That's fine. They abandoned her. She had almost no human contact. She lived with the dogs in the kennel. This is a true story. From the time she was three to the time she was uh, eight years old, she lived with almost no human contact with the dogs. When they found her, she was crawling on all fours, 
She was cleaning herself with her tongue the way a dog would clean itself. She would bark, and when I say bark, I don't mean bark like you and I do when we're trying to. It sounds just like a dog. I know it because I heard it on the Internet. They've got, they've got a 60-minute special on her a few years ago. In fact, if you look her up on the Internet, you can find all about her, and, and you'll, find, you'll find accounts of, of her. But she would bark. She'd run on all fours, and the way she ran, it was almost like a dog's gait. How she managed it is really, it's quite amazing. She would eat and drink simply by putting her mouth to the food, raw meat, whatever was scavenged up. She lived like a dog. She didn't know how to talk. She lived like a dog. She would get wet, she'd shake her head, just the way a dog would shake itself dry. It's eerie when you see her. When she was eight years old, she was found, and she was, put, uh, she was brought to, to therapists and to a home, and, and professionals began to work with her. Within six months, she had begun to speak in a way that was pretty extraordinary given where she had been. But, of course, she's not ever going to be able to, to function in the way a normal person would because the developmental process was, was just not intact in her early years. So she'll never read, for example. And, and her mental abilities, though she's, my gosh, she's probably 30 now, you know, that of a small child. But her story is a, is a powerful one of how she is shaped, you know, with this kind of identity. It's not even a human identity, but she's shaped with this identity. But she's brought out of that, and she begins to, to, to heal to a degree. She lives now, by the way, on a farm with other um, adults that, that have challenges. And she spends her time there and with the dogs there. Here's something that she says so very interesting to me. She said that even today, when she gets lonely, she has this urge to get down on all fours. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? It's, it's, it's disturbing. It's, it's, it's heartrending, really. Here's this young woman. When she gets lonely, she feels this urge to get down on all fours. She says she'll take a walk. Nobody sees her, and she's walking on all fours. It feels right. It's instinctive. On some level, she probably feels, you know what? This is me. This is, this is what I desire. This is what I want. But it's not what God created her for. But see, things happen to us. Things happen. We have experiences. We we make choices, we get confused, we're reaching for whatever might secure our happiness. And, and the result is we have all sorts of desires. We have all sorts of wants, all sorts of, I don't know, we have a sense of who we are and what will bring us fulfillment. And what the Scripture says is because of the fall, because of sin, we're, we're not the ones who know how to 
make those choices except as we submit ourselves to God. God has called us to something better. You know, people talk about authenticity all the time today. Talk about authenticity all the time. Well, let me ask you something. When Oksana feels lonely and she has this urge to get down on all fours, would doing that be an expression of her authentic self? Or would, be doing, would doing that be a tragic expression of a false self in a fallen world? To be her true self means, no, I am a human being, and I don't get down on all fours like that. See, we're confused about authenticity. Real authenticity, real authenticity is being our true and best self, and that is someone living under the authority of God and being God's representative in the world, doing in this world what God would have done. That's That's our true calling, and that's being authentic. Now, is that what I want all the time? No. A lot of times what I want is something God says no to. (laughs) You know, I shouldn't want it, but I do want it. Authenticity isn't saying, well, you know what, you just, you you know, that's my reality. That's my identity. That's what I do. That's That's not authenticity. Authenticity is acknowledging the truth about where I'm at, but acknowledging it as a confession, not as a program for life. A confession that turns into a prayer for grace and seeks with the grace of God to live the life God wants for me to have. And see, that's what it is to live as an individual. Not only do people talk a lot today about authenticity, they talk about, you know, being an individual. They want to be an individual. You know, be your own self. Let me tell you something. There is, <laughs> there is no better way to run with the crowd than to be yourself in the sense of whatever you think and feel, that's the way what you're going to do. Because that's what the whole world is saying, right? I mean, you're just, you're just going with the crowd when you go with that. And so you'll find a lot of people that on a superficial level, oh, they're such individualists, but they're just conforming to the crowd. I mean, their, their rebellion against the norms is the norm. It's absurd. The rebellion against the norm is the norm. You want a real individual, maybe the first one in history, a real individual. Look at Abraham. There he is in Ur, the Chaldeans. He's worshiping the gods he has inherited. He is living in his father's household. And God calls him to leave. And in perhaps an unprecedented move, Abraham leaves his father's household, leaves his clan, leaves his homeland, leaves his God. People in the ancient world never did that. It didn't fit your identity. If you were born in this place to these people with these gods, that's who you are. 
That's what they believe. That's who you are. You didn't have conversions, religious conversions from one religion to it. They didn't exist in the ancient world because who are you? You're who you're born to be. So that's Abraham, and God calls him to go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham obeyed and went. Now that's an individual. And I'll tell you what, you want to be an individual today? You don't become an individual by just consulting your own sense of rightness and going your own way and thumbing your nose at everybody else's opinion. That's not the way you do it. That's the, that is following the crowd. That is following the crowd. You want to be an individual? Hear the voice of God. Listen to the command of God. Obey the command of God. Live for God. Image God in this world. You do that, now that is an individual. That's someone who's swimming against the tide. And I think that's what God's called us to. That kind of life brings blessing. You notice that word showed up in the passage that we read? God blessed. See, everybody today is grasping after happiness. But blessing is deeper and richer than happiness. It does lead ultimately to happiness, but it truly, most profoundly leads to deep well-being in relationship with God. Blessing is God smiling upon us, watching out over us, guiding us, leading us to everlasting life. That's blessing. And if you want blessing, you can grasp after happiness and be as successful as most people are today. But if you want blessing, it comes from submitting to the God who created you with intent. That's true for all of us. Amen? Amen. Oh, I'm going to have to think about it, whether that guy came across the way I wanted it to or not. But I want to unpack this. There are a lot of different aspects to it. It gets very specific, and I want to talk about that, and we'll touch on some, some tough issues in the days, in the days ahead not to be harsh, not to be condemning of anyone, but to call ourselves to account to be God's faithful people in this world and to find what God wants for us. I want to flourish. Well, what's it mean to flourish? Well, that's what we're going to see in the days ahead. Now, in a moment, we're going to close the service. We're going to have a time of worship. And when we do, you know what? There are needs in this congregation. And one of the things we want is we just want people who come with needs to to know that there's always prayer for them. We don't want anybody to come with a need that doesn't, have, doesn't feel like they have the opportunity to have someone pray for them and with them. So as we sing, we're going to have prayer leaders over by, uh, by these two crosses on either side of the room. We put them on the side so that every eye won't be on you. I want to invite you to step aside if you have a need, if you have someone you care about who has a real need, you want to pray for them, and you want to, or you want prayer for yourself, let's take advantage of that. No one leave here with a heavy heart without reaching out for prayer. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, 
We know you have created us in your image. May we, by your grace, image you in this world. Teach us, Lord. We have so much to learn. Please teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.